Hi everyone, Future Brandon here. I don't usually pop up at the start of the episode, but this is a special occasion. Spider-Man No Way Home releases into theaters. A lot of excitement, a lot of anticipation, and a lot of potential for spoilers being revealed that a lot of people are taking seriously. If you are just clicking on this episode cold and you have not seen No Way Home, and some of you have not, please go down to the episode timestamps, whether you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, the description is the same, and it will tell you where we go into spoilers, and you can jump around via those timestamps. If you want to just listen through the podcast as a whole, I also give a disclaimer right before said spoiler section as an additional warning. Let me reiterate. If you have not seen Spider-Man No Way Home and you do not want to be spoiled under any circumstances, either A, consult the timestamps below and jump around as you please, or B, just save the episode for later once you have seen the movie. So anyways, let's see what intro madness I chopped up. I'm kind of sus there is no Tina anywhere, considering she's been so integral in the last two movies. Oh, fair. And to be fair, the Grindelwald trailers look good, too. So uh, She's in the cast list, too. So it's just like, okay, she plans on showing up somehow, but... She's pulling a Zoe Kravitz. She'll be there in a photograph. Um... <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of Plot Devices. We've made it thus far. Thank you for sticking with us. This is the Film and TV Show podcast. We film critics get together. We talk stuff. A lot of multiversal del Toro nonsense today. Uh, I'm not going to elaborate on that in case you want to be spoiled by the podcast, and you will. Uh, my name is Brandon King. I am one of your hosts for today, alongside our co-host, Samantha Corbaya. Sam, how are you today? I am good. I am still on this, like, emotional high from, like, seeing Spider-Man last night, so I'm, I can't wait to talk about it with everyone here. You shall be rewarded. Also <laughs> rewarding you is the presence of Noah Guzman, our other co-host for today. Noah, how are you doing today? We are talking multiversal madness today, and I'm not talking Doctor Strange 2. Maybe we'll mention Doctor Strange later in the episode, but you know me. My mind is going, and I cannot wait for us to get to No Way Home. We could mention potentially anything or everything all at once. That's my plug for the story, and you have to deal with it. Uh, the newest trailer, for those of you who are not aware, there is a movie coming out called Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, this is the newest project. From, if any of you saw Swiss Army Man with um, Paul Dano and uh, Daniel Radcliffe, weirdest movie in a while. But the group is monotonously known as Daniels because both of the directors' names, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Schwatke, I believe the other one's name is. Uh, they have been working on this project for a long time. The Russo Brothers are producing it. And now we finally get our first look at the trailer. It stars Michelle Yeoh, uh, of course, from uh, Shang-Chi, from uh, Crouching Tiger, from bunch of things you've probably seen uh as evelyn a chinese american woman who was thrust into a fantastical comedy adventure after literally being pulled throughout time in her own reality into a new one about discovering the wonders of the multiverse and how that might attain to her own family problems uh it released earlier this week it stars uh stephanie sue uh james hong jenny slate and jamie lee curtis it is set for release in march of 2022 in theaters no i want to go over to you first uh this is from the same duo that made swiss army man are you familiar with that film did you have any thoughts of these directors going into their next project? And does everything everywhere all at once look to be a proper follow-up to that? I've never seen Swiss Army Man, Brandon, so you'll have to enlighten us on how on how that adventure feels. But we're getting it is the age for a multiversal story. So I'm so happy to get um something that is not Marvel, but is still dabbling with the um concepts of uh interdimensional you know traveling um it's not coming from christopher nolan but we will be talking nolan in a minute uh so that's exciting and then this is from a24 i need a collage of just all of a24's um like 
all of their branding for their for their lettering because this time when you watch the trailer it's filled with googly eyes i remember watching midsommar and it was filled with flowers and they're always so beautiful like their branding is always on point so um knowing that this is a comedy knowing that this is a an action story i'm just happy to see michelle yo in a uh in a title role or I'm sorry, not in a title role, but in a starring role. I think that um, we've seen her over the years and especially for myself, who's a fan of the Marvel movies. We saw her at the end of um, guardians of the galaxy two, and then she returned in Shang-Chi. So um, she definitely has um, the credits. I mean, check on IMDb. She has so many acting credits. She's been in the industry for decades. So I cannot wait to see uh, this next project where she'll be starring. And I learned that um, Indiana Jones's short round, um, actor oh his name slips my mind but he'll be playing her husband in one of the dimensions so uh that was cool to see him in the trailer you know you you already catch the voice you know it's funny with this movie because i feel like leading up to its premiere i'm gonna screw up the name multiple times the title of this movie <laughs> like i know i'm gonna get myself totally reversed around but as it should be as we're exploring the multiverse here um but the thing is is i, I think this movie looks phenomenal i mean we already know that michelle yo is like a badass right and so i'm happy to see her finally as noah mentioned in like a a starring role because i feel like she's amazing in in you know like crazy rich asians and shang chi like she's a scene stealer in my opinion and of course you know most people are just barely hearing of her unfortunately because of these big movies lately but she's been phenomenal for years and so i'm just excited to see this title role for her again and it looks kooky like i personally had never seen swiss army man um but i know its context and it's it looks as kooky as that, but I'm, I, I think it's going to have such a high production value because it looks like the costume design is amazing because there are times when we see multiple lives of Michelle Yeoh's character and the costume design is amazing. And same with production design. It looks like we're transported in all these different places. And I did see like a half a second of animation. And for some re- weird reason, I do really love when we have like live action movies and they throw in animation stylistically. Cause I don't know, like it, it I think it adds so much to the story and talent to the you know the crew that they want to throw that in seamlessly and so i'm hoping that it all comes together well that it doesn't turn into this big gobbledygook of multiple lives but it's just awesome and the fact that it's like a martial arts kung fu movie and it looks like it's going to be as what's the word for it it's just as dramatic overly dramatic as like some of those classic hong kong style movies could be you know so I'm I'm really excited to see it. I was so hyped, and especially in A24, we trust. So uh, definitely looking forward to this when it moved to like my um, my most anticipated movies of 22 coming up. It's funny because you know in a post Spider Verse, post you know MCU, you know kind of post DC Verse as well, we we're getting the multiverse as more of a concept that I would say is more accessible. Which is weird to say because this is an A24 movie, it's made for art house nerds like us. So, like, the fact that I'm saying it's accessible is a little bit of hyperbole, but I love the fact that we are getting the concept explored and things that are not just comic book material. Like, this could be really interesting, particularly from Daniels. Um, Swiss Army Man is weird and quirky and dark, and yet somehow it kind of works if you let it. Um, so I was really interested because I remember hearing about this movie like a year and a half ago and was like, oh, yeah, the Rooster Brothers are producing Daniel's next movie. Jamie Lee Curtis and Michelle Yao are in it. That sounds weird. Um, and then we see the trailer and it's just as weird. Like, I like the idea that the multiverse can be used as a reflection to yourself. And I like that A24 is trying to utilize that idea through a directing pair like Daniel's. If the Russo Brothers are supporting it, great. I'm glad they're doing that. I'd much rather see them producing than directing, frankly. 
Um, the cast is great, and I'm very curious to see what this turns out to be. And how fun is that title going to be uh, when it drops? Like, hey, what are you going to go check out? Oh, everything, everywhere, all at once. No, no, what, what's the movie called? Every, everything, everywhere, all at once. And you're going to get some people who are like, I just don't get it. I'm sorry. Is, is that that Amanda Stenberg movie? No, that's everything, everything. <laughs> Except all this time it's everywhere see. and all at once. <laughs> all you have to do is stick a googly eye on your forehead and hopefully they get the picture. If not, you're like, well... I'm at a loss. I, I can't explain it any more than that. <laughs> I I swear, if that becomes like the nerdy or the nerdy Halloween costume of like, oh, I have a googly eye, so I'm from the multiverse. Like, if that becomes a thing, we'll make it. I'm, a he- thing. I'm here for it. We already have our Halloween costumes planned. Yes, <laughs> coming as the Order of the Eye. Um, next up in our main topics for today, uh, as many of you. Some of you may remember when we talked about Christopher Nolan's uh, newest project, the uh, film based on J. Robert Oppenheimer's life and the creation of the Manhattan Project and the Atomic Bomb. That film had already gotten its main cast uh, set up. Killian Murphy, who is a longtime collaborator of Christopher Nolan's, he's going to be cast as Oppenheimer as well. We got some news this week that expands the cast, I'd say, fairly significantly. Uh, Florence Pugh, of course, from uh, Outlaw King, Little Women, the, um, the Black Widow movie, uh, and the Hawkeye series, uh, she's joining the cast. Rami Malek, who, of course, just won an Oscar a few years ago for Bohemian Rhapsody, of course, from uh, Mr. Robot, from Night at the Museum, a bunch of other things. He's joining the cast, as well as Benny Safdie, who you can see in just a few weeks in uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, part of the Safdie brothers who directed the, you know, stressful as all heck uncut gems. Uh, But Benny is also an actor in his own right. He is joining the cast as well. That includes the aforementioned Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Robert Downey Jr., and Matt Damon. Uh, this is going to be Nolan's first major work for Universal. It is scheduled for some time for release, potentially next year, uh, if not earlier 2023. Sam, I want to go over to you. Uh, we've talked about Nolan's, you know, structures and his cast and the way he sets up movies. And you saw Tenet, so I'm sure that you can deliver more of a statement on this than I can. What do you think of this cast for as stacked as it is for a project like this? Oh my goodness. Yeah. With this cast, I'm really excited about it, to be honest. I am not that familiar with Benny Safdie's work just yet. So with him, for me, he's still a mystery, but everyone else I'm pretty familiar with. Either way, though, this is such a stacked cast that I'm very excited to see it, especially, you know, because there are some actors in here who haven't really been tied to a Christopher Nolan work yet. So I'm really interested in seeing where this goes. Um, But, you know, it's funny, we were saying a little bit like, off podcast recording that like I, I i feel like i'm expecting the usual nolan tropes like i'm expecting to see the atomic bomb detonate and then undetonate like, like i don't know what timey-wimey thing we're gonna get into with this movie or if he's even gonna go with uh, his usual um theme central around time but um you know I, i'm just curious to see how this will go and especially because like with tenet for me personally i liked it initially when i saw it and then the more i thought about it the more i was like wait it's kind of hard to even describe what the movie's about because the plot was so ethereal is the wrong word but it was just kind of like it was very open to interpretation and so you know, it, it was kind of hard to hear in times too granted i did go to see it in a drive-in movie theater because covid and what have you but i i mean i i also know like watching back again a second time later it was still hard to hear some of the dialogue which i to my understanding is a purposeful choice of his so again i'm not sure how much of his, you know how many of his tropes will be in this movie but either way i'm excited about a movie like this especially with the cast as stacked as this 
Yeah, and we should uh, mention that the, a lot of governors from Tenet are coming back. Uh, Hoytman Hoytman, the cinematographer, Jennifer Lane, his editor, and Ludwig Gorenson, of course, from uh, Black Panther and Tenet as well, coming back to uh, do the score. No Hans Zimmer booms for this one. Noah, how do you feel about that? No Hans Zimmer booms. I don't know how I feel about that, you know. Sign me um, up, then. <laughs> Oppenheimer, we are talking uh, the next Nolan project that is going to be based on real-life events. Um, I find myself more of a fan of Nolan's, you know, fictional projects or, or ones that are more, um, outlandish with their, with their plot limits. So, you know, how I'm sailing into this movie is really just with the casting in mind. Uh, this is pretty much, uh, once Emily Blunt picks up her role as Invisible Woman, then we'll have an MCU stacked cast reunion here. Um, but until that day, uh, at least we have Florence Pugh, Robert Downey Jr., that'll be excellent to see how Nolan captures them on screen because he just, how he has his characters in his movies, I'm always inspired by. But I think what's going to be really important is when that first teaser trailer drops, we can kind of get the vibe for what this film is going to be uh, exploring and in what method. I happen to not be interested in a three-hour epic, but understanding the scale of the story, of course, we can expect something long. Um, I just hope it's not overstaying its welcome, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's interesting because when we read that Variety article, I'm almost certain it was Variety, uh, when that Variety article came out last summer about, you know, the studios kind of, you know, godfathering Nolan to get in their, you know, good graces about like, oh, we'll give you the 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 100 day theatrical window and the, you know, 20% of the gross and all these different things. I was frankly still a little bit worried because I don't think that, you know, I don't think the filmmaker should have to play hardball with that. So I was always a little bit concerned about that. That being said, the more I've heard about this Oppenheimer project and considering how big of a fan I was of Dunkirk, uh, this sounds amazing. Uh, as I've done more research into Oppenheimer prior to this, like, I like the idea that, you know, Florence Pugh is playing the woman who kind of, you know, Benny Safdie is playing Edward Teller, who is kind of in his own rights, the, you know, father of the atomic bomb to an extent. So, like, I like the idea of, you know, again, going to, like, who gets credit for what and, like, what's the personal matter of that? Like, these are still people who, you know, killed millions. Like, what does that ramification have on you? And I think Nolan can dive into that very significantly. I'm fascinated to see what Robert Downey Jr. can do under Nolan's direction because he's already an incredibly flashy, eccentric performer. What does he do? I'm already picturing like David Bowie in um in The Prestige, like that kind of vibe to him. So like, I'm very curious. To, I'm happy to see like the original col- the tenant collaborators coming back. I love Puerto cinematography. I love Jennifer's um editing, and Ludwig is you know one of the best modern composers today. So like, rounding out this cast, I can't wait for a teaser. I'm sure it's going to give us nothing, just as you know Dunkirk and Tenet did for their first trailers. But you know what? When it does, I'm sure it'll be something special. Let's move on then to our third and final main topic for today. Uh, I'm sure some of you video game nerds out there, i.e., you know, Noah and Sam, have heard there is a little game called Gotham Knights coming out. We're not here to talk about Gotham Knights, the video game. We're here to talk about Gotham Knights, the series? How is this? Um, this is coming from a Variety article that apparently unrelated to Gotham Knights, the video game, and the series Batwoman, which is currently the series exploring the Bat family right now in CW, The network is currently developing a Gotham Knights standalone series. This is the synopsis we got from the Variety article just a few days ago. In the show, in the wake of Bruce Wayne's murder, his rebellious adopted son, probably Dick Grayson, forges an unlikely alliance with the children of Batman's enemies when they are all framed for killing the Cape Crusader. And, as the city's most wanted criminals, this renegade band of misfits must fight to clear their names. But in a Gotham with no Dark Knight to protect it, the city descends into the most dangerous it's ever been. However... 
Hope comes in the form of unexpected places as this team of mismatched fugitives will become the next generation of saviors known as the Gotham Knights. Uh, speaking of Batwoman, show uh, writers for that series, Natalie Abrams, James Sodero, and Chad Fevish uh, are set to show run the series. Arrowverse staples, uh, Greg Berlanti, Sarah Schechter, they'll be involved in this as well. We don't have a release date for it. We expect it again sometime early 2023 at the earliest. Uh, it'll join new shows like uh, Superman and Lois and Naomi and whatever else the CW has been cooking up. The video game Gotham Knights, if you want to check that out, is going to be released probably sometime mid next year. And Batwoman is currently in its third season. No word on a fourth season revival as of yet. Uh, Noah, I want to go over to you because we've heard about this Gotham Knights game for a while. And apparently this will have no connection to that. Uh, based on just the idea that we've seen, because this isn't a huge precedence of an idea in the comics, this is taking the idea of the villains route instead of the various Robins and sidekicks and like that. Is that a good approach for somebody like the CW? Well, I was talking to Sam uh, before we started recording, and I said the CW shows have always intimidated me because of their vastness and because of the catalog of all the shows that they have and how connected they all are, that it looks like a big beast that I don't think I can conquer alone. And to know that um, the Gotham Knight series is going to center around more of the connected characters in Gotham, that excites me because then I'm like, okay, that sounds like a show that I can hop on board, you know, day one and not feel like I'm missing out on part of the story. Um, I know that uh, with at least the Gotham Knights video game, we have characters who I, who I am starting to become a fan of. We're talking um, Red Hood, we're talking Batgirl, we're talking, um, Robin and Nightwing. So if we can see that in the show, then I'm going to feel more connected to it because, you know, I will be playing the video game. Um, but overall, I think this seems like an approachable CW uh, DC project and maybe I've been waiting for that. So this is good news. Yeah. And it's, you know, it was interesting because when you see the headline, when that news first broke, I was like, Oh, how related is this to the video game? And it's like completely not related to the video game. So I don't know how that's going to go down to be honest, just because I feel like most people are going to get very confused and then disappointed in the end if they don't do their research. So you heard it here first, do your research. <laughs> Hot takes. Um, but no, the you know, I think it sounds interesting because again, it's another chance to kind of like shed light on some new characters into the CW and especially to see how interconnected it would be with like the Arrowverse and everything on, on DCCW universe, it would just be interesting to see how they kind of tie in together. Um, especially cause we're starting to see this new generation or new phase of the Arrowverse and, and new characters are kind of coming into the play. So, you know, I, I don't know much about again, comics of these characters and what's going to happen here, but you know, I'm, I'm very excited to see what they'll do because, you know, at least with the CW, I feel like most of their characters are usually, written pretty well, especially when they have the time and the series um, run times to like flesh it out, you know? So we'll see what happens. And um, I'm excited for both the video game and the series. And I'm excited, especially to hear from Brandon, who I feel like is our in resident Arrowverse fan. So I, I am looking forward to hearing what he has to say about it now. Uh, the word is pathetic loser. And um, oh, please. What, <laughs> what I'm, what I'm interested to say about this is, you know, his rebellious adopted son, which could be any of them. Um, I hope they don't go the obvious route of being like, oh, it's Jason. And, you know, it's going to be like Jason Todd has to like ramble together a team and he's just an a-hole about it. Like, I don't want that. Like, make it Dick Grayson. I know it's not connected to Titans. Make it a different version of Dick Grayson if you have to. Um, it could be Tim. It could be Damien. I'm very curious to say the idea of villains' children. I very much got vibes of like the Descendants, and I don't know how good I feel for the CW about that. I've already seen so many people online just being like, "This is gonna be crap." Like, 
uh, CW doesn't do anything right. And frankly, I don't blame you. I don't blame any of them for that, whether it's the Supergirl debacle, whether it's, you know, anything with Legends, the Batwoman news with uh, with uh, Ruby Rose that we talked about. Like, I get it. The CW is not in everyone's good graces. I like this idea. I remember watching the show as a video game and thinking, this is a really neat idea. Like, it looks like a cool game, but it's a really neat idea to kind of, you know, bring back together, you know, the members of the Bat family. I like that idea. So if it's this, I like Batwoman as a show. I'm not opposed to having Natalie Abrams and her team work on this. So give me a first look, give me a casting, give me something more concrete than this, but on purely on plot alone, I'm into it. And with that, we're going to move on to our quick hit segment of the week. This is the, again, quick hit segment, where if you just want a very brief piece of news uh, from each of us, we each have picked something out that's maybe not uh, fleshed out for a full-blown discussion, but we each pick something out that stands up to us from the week. So, Sam, we're going to go over to you first. Uh, start your timer. You got it. All right. In three, two, one. So I know you keep hearing all the Harry Potter news for me. I'm sorry, not sorry, but I'm very excited that Fantastic Beasts 3 got a trailer drop. So then this one is Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. We see a bit more of our young Dumbledore played by uh, Jude Law. So I am very excited to see what happens. We saw a bit of his brother too. Um, and so this is just exciting. We're seeing more characters. I'm a little sus that we don't see Tina anywhere in the trailer because she's my favorite character from like the entire Fantastic Beasts franchise. Um, and so that's uh, Catherine Watterson who who plays Tina. Um, and so I, I'm just really curious to see what happens here. Mads Mikkelsen looks great as Gellert there's so much drama behind that i'm looking forward to what happens there but then my other quick hit i just wanted to mention that betty white's also doing a hundredth birthday celebration what see this um exclusive like documentary movie celebration kind of thing going on um everywhere january 17th in your theaters so check out the uh, tickets for that and (laughs) otherwise i would have gone way over neat all right i will say that the dumbledore trailer actually is kind of neat i know i thought it was kind of cool too but it's just I'm very skeptical because again, I, I'm, I'm kind of sussed that there is no Tina anywhere considering she's been so integral in the last two movies. Oh, fair. And to be fair, the Grindelwald trailers look good too. So uh, she's whatever. in the cast list too. So it's just like, okay, she plans on showing up somehow, but we'll see. She's pulling a Zoe Kravitz. She'll be there in a photograph. Um, <laughs> on to my quick hits in three, two, one. So for those of you who thought, Oh, I just read the show notes from the bottom. We're talking way too much about Guillermo del Toro. We're talking about Guillermo del Toro again, because in addition to the press junket for Nightmare Alley for, you know, the past month or so, he actually revealed his original plan for what was going to be Pacific Rim 2, then Pacific Rim 2 Uprising. This is his quote from Collider. Uh, the villain that was this tech guy that invented basically the sort of internet 2.0. And so little by little, they start putting just this whole thing together about his patents that come to him one morning and they go, oh, he got them from the precursors. That's, you know, the guys that control the kaiju. And then we find out the precursors are like thousands of years in the future. They're us trying to terraform and re and kind of reestablish the earth to survive. Wow. And we're in these exosuits that look alien, but we were inside. It's this really interesting paradox. Sometimes Guillermo Toro gets caught up in his own lore and his own comments, as I was trying to do, just read that. But considering what we got with Pacific Rim Uprising, I like the idea of pulling an interstellar and being like, no, it's us from the future. And like the kaiju are misunderstood. Like, I like that complexity. And I wish we had gotten it and time. Buzzer beater, man. GG's. (laughs) 
All right, I'll come in. I'll come in to wrap it up, and I'm going to go ahead and have the quickest uh, quick hit. So, uh, oh, my time's already started. Is that a challenge? (laughs) So, (laughs) last week I mentioned I had a soft mention about LCD sound system. So, I'm going to bring it back for a follow up story. LCD sound system announces a holiday special that is going to be streaming on Amazon Prime Video on December 22nd. Um, The holiday special will be filmed in a sitcom style. Um, The members of the group have already mentioned. being involved in film, being involved in music, but what they've yet to conquer, uh, in a quote here from, from actor Eric Wareheim, um, what they have yet to conquer is the sitcom, the highest form of art. So, uh, what this holiday special covers is, or what this holiday special includes is actors portraying the band members. So, um, adding, Another name to the cast list, it is Macaulay Culkin. So we'll ha- we'll get to see different actors portray the members of the band. Uh, of course, they are a rock band, so I can't wait to see what that special brings us. Almost close to the time. It's there. I can't stop it. It's there. <laughs> time, it's moving. I can't stop it. <laughs> it's everywhere. It's all at once. Okay. Oh, my God. On the daily. Uh, you did it. <laughs> okay. Brandon, let them know what we're about to dive into. We are delving into our new releases for this week. Uh, we had more to get to. We didn't have time. Again, it's holiday season. You're getting what you get. Uh, but what you get is two pretty big properties. We are going to be getting Spider-Man eventually, but we're going to be starting out with Sergio del Toro and his newest project, Nightmare Alley. Uh, it's in theaters right now. Sam, you reviewed this for ASU Odyssey. Uh, can you give the people a quick rundown of what Nightmare Alley even is? Yeah, absolutely. So it is a film that is very heavily inspired by um, just in those era of films that are like neo-noir like. And so Nightmare Alley is actually a movie that was made previously, I believe in the forties, if I'm not mistaken. And so it's um, a remake of that and it's made to look a little darker in my opinion, because Guillermo del Toro special touches in here. He's the director. We also have a super, super stacked cast too. We have Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, uh, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, um, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, it keeps going on and on. But the those are kind of our main players here. And uh, it basically follows this one man who um, is played by Bradley Cooper's name, Stan. And so he, it, the movie kind of starts out with him in this mysterious house and he's burning down and it's like, okay, edgy. And then he goes onto a train and ends up at a carnival. And so he ends up seeing what's called a geek. And this man is a little bit deranged. He is kind of like a sideshow or not a sideshow, but he's like the main show for this carnival. And he's like disgusted by this individual because he's like ripping chickens by his hand and like eating them raw as alive, like kind of like an animal. Right. And so he is disgusted by it, but yet he ends up getting a job here. Cause what else is he going to do is this house burned down. He's just kind of wandering around. He's like, sure, I'll take a job at the carnival because um, the ringleader played by Willem Dafoe offers it to him. And so he ends up getting closer to a, um, a, a psychic uh, in the, in the carnival who is played by Tony Collette and um, her husband, is an alcoholic, but he grows close to these two people. Her husband is played by David Strathairn. He's also an alcoholic. And so that kind of plays into the film if you see it. But he, uh, Bradley Cooper's character gets close to these two, learns a little bit about um, manipulating people and kind of what that looks like because this is the carnival. We manipulate everybody. And so when he develops this talent, he 
you know, the more he develops it, the more danger comes into his life. Um, but he does also end up falling in love with Rudy Mara's character, who is an electrifying woman, if you will, because her act is basically the fact that she could absorb high um, watts, uh, wattages and volts of electricity. So um, there's a lot going on. It's a carnival. It's wacky. Um, but I, you know, I think that it's it's a good look into Guillermo del Toro's world without a creature feature. Because initially when I was looking into this movie, I was worried that, you know, this geek was going to be like some weird beast and turn into him or something at night, like a werewolf or something. I had no idea what I was expecting because I'd never seen the original movie from the 40s. So it was just, you know, I, I didn't know really what to expect. Um, and I could go more into my thoughts soon, but Brandon, I also want to hear yours. Um, so w- what did you think of this film a- as a whole? Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's a lot of subtlety of this movie. And that's not something that I usually see from Guillermo del Toro. Um, you know, of course, with, you know, Penn's Labyrinth and Shape of Water, you know, I love his films. And we'll get into that with directorial debut as well. But I was curious to see, like, what he could do with something that was seemingly more grounded, you know, based in kind of noir aesthetics. And this is very much del Toro kind of going back to that era of when that original Nightmare Alley was made, I believe, 46, 47, uh, with Tyrone Power that we talked about a few weeks ago. And uh, granted, I did not get around to seeing the original. I really wanted to, to compare and contrast, but it's clearly him going back to the idea of, like, you know, analog carnivals and, you know, po- pre-war, sort of post-war environment and, like, where psychology and, you know, mentalism was at, at the time. And again, like, without going into too much detail, like, I like where he goes with that. You know, it doesn't always work. There's a stretch about in the middle where I think it kind of tempers off, per se. Uh, but a lot of the performances, the production design, the score from Nathan Johnson, who was actually Ryan Johnson's brother, which I thought was really interesting. Um, a lot of the technical elements are really there. And I think there's enough subtext there that really hooked me. Yeah, and that's how I felt about the movie overall, too, because it's like there are so many pluses to this movie. I genuinely had fun watching it. It kind of drags a little bit in the middle, in my opinion, uh, the storyline, but then otherwise, like the production value is amazing. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie because, again, it just captures that neo-noir uh, aesthetic really really well especially with like lots of different misty scenes lots of um cool ways to play with shadows and so i think that it's a really beautiful movie cinematography wise production design wise costume design wise there's a lot to look at and it's a really beautiful spectacle for that um for me personally i feel like the story didn't always work just because like not only did it again drag in the middle but i felt like it i was looking at two completely separate movies and so it was just like the first, it was like, oh, okay, you have this main, quote-unquote, main cast that's with Bradley Cooper's character. And then in the like second half of the movie, it's like a completely different area. His journey kind of brings him outside the carnival. And it's like, you know, it, it just like a, is a whole new crop of, quote-unquote, main characters from my opinion so it's like you know all the performances are really really good that's something that you can't deny here but it's just like i feel like i was watching two different movies at once and so for me a couple times it worked a couple times it didn't um so i think that's also um stylistically up to the viewer's opinion on if that works or not I completely agree. Like, there's a point where a certain character is introduced about halfway through, and then it, it does become a very much different movie. Like, not just visually, not just, like, aesthetically, but, like, in terms of how the characters act and, like, where the story goes from there. It becomes a story less about, like, you know, an ambitious carny and, like, the world of the carnival and what that represents into an idea of, like, you know, weird, like, psychological torture kind of thing and, like, 
and like grief and trauma and like it becomes this weird other thing and Kate Blanchett who is great in it kind of is just playing up the noir tropes of it all like I and she's good enough to make that work I was really more impressed with Bradley Cooper um who has to play a lot of the movie very close to the vest who has to play it very much you know very subtle very like off kilter for him until we do get the moment from him and when we do it's incredibly satisfying to watch for the character and for the actor as well like I've, I've been a fan of him for a long time and just to be able to see him expand his roles like this i was really impressed by that and also Willem defoe gets a few really posh shot moments yeah absolutely and you know kind of to your point too it feels like some of the characters motivations for me were kind of muddled as well and i think it's because some of the characters it was purely just because they were evil and they just felt like screwing things up because they could um so i feel like those were kind of um, especially Kate Blanchett's character, I feel like she had an agenda and she carried it through. And so, you know, like, I think it's just purely because she's like crazy and, and crazy, you know, makes for good characters. Right. <laughs> but then I feel like, especially Rooney Mara's character, I feel like she got so underutilized in the last half of the movie. Cause I feel like she could have done so much more and that so much more could have been done with her character. And so that was something I also felt a little dissatisfied with, but again, like actors did the best they did. They did the best they could, excuse me, with their material. And again, you know, it was a good um, spectacle movie. Yeah, Rudy Mar, I think, falls victim to the idea of this being, you know, a classic noir story where it's like, oh, the, you know, female lead does not get to do that much, but she has to because she's the female lead. And, you know, I, I think it, she gets tied up in that. I do just want to quickly comment before we wrap on the idea of evil in this movie, because I think there's this idea of, again, I talked about like that pre, you know, that kind of post-World War One, pre-World War Two kind of thing, because the whole mm-hmm. movie is kind of based around the time that World War Two starts breaking out. And I like the idea of you know, entertainment as carnies being valued by society and that being turned on its head. Like the people who we task with entertaining us will then turn it to greed and corruption so easily. Like, I think there's something to be said about that in this movie. I'm not sure the film quite nails it, but it was something that I locked on to. Yeah, absolutely. I see where you're coming from with that. So um, I I think we'd be good to wrap with our um, star reviews and star ratings if you're good too. Nope. Uh, did you want to go first or? I'd give this a solid seven. I honestly really like the movie a lot. And um, yeah, seven it is. I'm going a bit higher. I, I'm giving this an eight. Uh, and that might even increase, you know, upon rewatch. And for a movie that's two and a half hours, I legitimately might want to revisit this. Because again, it is gloriously shot. It's gloriously designed. The performances have this real great kind of, you know, noir sense to it that Del Toro brings, but not too much to make them distracting. I think this is a movie that's going to value itself upon rewatches. I don't know in contrast to the original, but I really would like to see it. And with that, we're going to move on to our next and final new release for this week. Probably the one that you guys have been the most curious to hear our thoughts about, that everyone in the world has been hearing our thoughts about. Uh, Spider-Man No Way Home is here. It's swung into movie theaters. And yes, I'm using the pun that every marketing department in the world has used. I don't even care. We just want to talk about this movie. How do we talk about this movie? Because everyone has been so trepidatious of spoilers and, you know, being in the loop about everything. I am going to attempt as basic as I can to sum up this movie, and I will be using stuff in the trailers. So if you haven't used the trailer, if you haven't watched trailers and you haven't want to see anything from that, go away right now. Just skip to the very, very end and you can hear our thoughts for that. But I will be telling you things that are in the trailers. So just keep that in mind, okay? We're, we're going to spoilers later, but this is what is at now. So Spider-Man No Way Home. This is the sequel to 2019 Spider-Man Far From Home. John Watts returns to direct, uh, Chris McKenna and Eric Summers return to write, and Tom Holland obviously returns as Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man. 
from the last film, again, if you haven't watched Far From Home, significant plot spoilers from that movie, uh, Peter's identity is out in the open. Mysterio dies, and he leaves a video basically being like, hey, Spider-Man killed me. Also, he's this 17-year-old kid named Peter Parker. So now, Peter's identity is out in the world. Everyone knows it, and his life is in shambles. Uh, his friends kind of have hardships just their way. Of course, played once again by uh, Zendaya and Jacob Adelon. His aunt, uh, May, played by Marissa Tomei, is getting some hard times. Happy, who is back in this, played by John Favreau. He is unable to continue, you know, Tony's legacy from the from the past movies. So, what does Peter do? He goes to his good friend, good friend, quote-unquote, uh, Stephen Strange, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, to hopefully cause a spell to make the world forget that he's Spider-Man. This is, a go- again, in the trailers, spell goes wrong. People start to pour through multiversal portals, because apparently the spell interacts with, like, the walls of reality, and people who knew Spider-Man from other universes start pouring in, some of which include uh, Alfred Molina's Doc Ock and Willem Dafoe's uh, Green Goblin from the Raimi movies, along with a couple others that, you know, if you've seen, you've seen. If not, I won't spoil too hard. But needless to say, now it is up to Peter and MJ and uh, Ned, of course, you know, his friends and everyone else, to try and get these, you know, multiversal anomalies back to Doctor Strange who can set them right, maybe prick the spell, maybe help Peter out, and for Peter to discover his own reality and his own stakes as well. I'm, I'm sure I've lost at least one of you from clicking from spoilers. None of that is spoilers. We knew that already. But let's get into the actual movie just pure baseline as we can. Sam, over to you first. I know that we've all been losing our minds for this movie in various capacities. Spider-Man No Way Home, was it worth it? I absolutely think it was worth it, to be honest. <laughs> so um, the funny context for me, right? I tried to avoid even the, the, the preview screenings as a critic because I wanted to experience it with a live public audience. <laughs> and so I, I was totally wrapped up in the excitement of this cinematic event it turned into. So um, with this movie, I thoroughly had a lot of fun. It has its moments and quirks, which we'll get into later. But, you know, I, I do feel like it's overall one of the best movies for the MCU by far. And it's especially for those who are fans of Spider-Man as a character, you know, you're going to love this movie no matter what. And so I feel like, you know, the acting's really good. I also love the visual effects because it's also in the, in the trailer, but you see a little bit more of um, Dr. Strange's powers in like this mirror world, this mirror, um, what dimension, the mirror dimension that he uh, manipulates things around him and buildings are sideways and trains come in out of nowhere, et cetera. So you see that a bit in the trailers, but um, you see lots of really, really cool visuals. And, you know, it feels like the stakes haven't been this high for Spider-Man just yet, especially for personal um, reasons too. personal reasons being for Spider-Man's um, friends and family and how they're affected in the story. And so it's kind of hard to say that, right? Because you think, how could the stakes be higher after fighting Thanos? But they are. And so I think, again, if you're a Spider-Man fan, you're going to absolutely love how Peter Parker and and Tom Holland's Peter Parker specifically learns what it means to be a Spider-Man. And so I think, you know, overall, the movie was really good. And especially the story pace, it moved so quickly. Like there were times when I was like, holy cow, we're already at this point in the story. Or like, you know, I was never bored for a moment. And I don't know if that's some kind of weird like attention thing where I'm like, oh, you got to go here and, and focus on this one. Now we're on here. And so I don't know. It was just helpful for people who have short attention spans to stay 
in pace with the story. So um, overall, for those reasons, I thought I thought it was a pretty good movie. Um, and just because it's not much of a spoiler, I'll talk about it here um, with uh, what, Tony Revolori's character, Flash. I'm honestly pleasantly surprised that we saw him very little to be honest in my ideal world i would like to see him never i had no offense to the actor it's just that it, it goes back to some of the things i've mentioned in the past with mcu movies i sometimes i think the sense of humor misses its beats and i feel like his humor was so unnecessary in this movie it completely completely unnecessary and so i was just like you know what we don't have to see his character anymore. And so I'm glad this is the, the movie where we've seen him the least amount of times. It's, I know it's such a very weird thing to pick out of a negative. And then there are more that are more spoiler ridden. So stay tuned for later, but um, overall, yeah, liked the movie, thought it was fun. So how about you, Brandon? <laughs> yeah. If they're ever going to make flash tops in this universe, Agent Venom, they're going to do some major renovations to his character. Just, uh, just saying, um, I, you know, like you guys know, like I came into this as, you know, the cynical a-hole about this. Like, yes, I, lo- I love Homecoming. Like, go listen to our Spider-Man Ranked episode if you, have, if you want to know our thoughts on those movies. Um, I love Homecoming. I really enjoy Far From Home. But I was really hoping to see this incarnation of Tom Holland's Spider-Man get to be Spider-Man. Like, get to have his own stakes and his own world and his own story and not be so tied to, you know, Doctor Strange and the multiverse and like all these other things and like this big always engrossing story that seemed to be teeting its way into you know homecoming whether it was the Iron Man stuff or whether it was you know far from home with you know shield and the scrolls and everything like I I didn't want that to happen so I was going as this trepidatious this movie's a freaking blast uh it's so much fun it might be I think it is the best of the MCU trilogy as far as stakes go as far as writing goes as far as performances go it all ties together in a way that yes it's less consistent than homecoming and we will get to that in my negatives uh but i think if you're a spider-man fan you will love this movie if you're a fan of any incarnation of the character of what he represents of an idea of a kid trying to do right in the world by his friends and family in a world that will constantly put him down and constantly cause him to make you know tough decisions and tough outcomes for his life that's this movie. And I'm shocked at how well it manages to maintain that. Like, we'll get into everything else in spoilers. But, like, the first hour and a half of this movie, I was literally just saying to myself, oh, my God, they're doing it. They're actually making a Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland's character having stakes and, like, focused framing. Like, this is exactly what I wanted from Far From Home. Like, let's explore, like, what happens when half the world hates you. Like, I really want to see. And it works so well. Tom Holland has never been better in this. The action sequences with him are incredibly visceral, and he's always up to the task. I love what they do with Zendaya and Jacob Battle on this. Like, I love their chemistry again, but, like, they actually get agency this time around beyond being, like, the best friend of the love interest, and I like seeing that kind of stuff. Villains, we'll get to all that. But, like, I like the idea of just having a Spider-Man movie where Peter has to make tough calls. And we've gotten that in Homecoming and Far From Home to an extent, but this is where it feels the most dire, the most grand, and the most, you know, focused on his character. And that aspect, I adore this movie. We'll get to the negatives later, but no, I want to get to your thoughts. Brandon, burning so bright for the negative portion, okay? We got to praise this I'm movie. sorry! I- <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm going to knock out, uh, first off, just MCU is sticking to this trilogy formula where that third movie, um, the third slot in their trilogies are going to have um, invitations to characters uh, beyond the title role to come and join them. We saw that in Captain America Civil War. We saw that in Thor Ragnarok when Hulk joined the team. And now um, with 
Spider-Man's No Way Home, we have villains not only from our universe, but universes combined coming to join and fight off um, Tom Holland's Spider-Man. It, it's magnificent. I had to see this in an audience full in, in a um, public screening because uh, for one, I didn't get that early screener. And for two, because it, after enjoying Infinity War with that audience reaction, after, you know, following it up with Endgame, these are cinematic events. And, I, and I'm afraid that they're not going to like, they're not going to lessen after the fact, like they're only going to get bigger. They're only going to get better. And you got to continue to just, um, you know, stay safe. Of course, we know how hard it is to return to theaters. Um, for uh, many places in the in the nation in the world but this really it just it pays to that experience just to feel the energy in the room and when it's not just you um and it's you know a hundred or so people it, it just feels so grand and so powerful and you feel like those moments are yours and so uh that was the first mention out the gate uh secondly Zendaya and Tom Holland, their relationship is blooming off screen and on screen. You know, she recently posted an Instagram post saying, you know, congrats to my Spider-Man. And I just find that so romantic because they are the, they are the it couple right now. And, uh, it's just, it's wonderful to see. And on screen, it is even better to watch how their relationship um, is continuing after Far From Home when they kind of realize their feelings for each other. Um, and now they're more of like a, you know, stable couple here in this film. Also, it just felt so much scarier when Peter realized that there was danger around the corner because we're zooming in on his face and he just has this look of dread because he definitely feels all of that tension, but he doesn't, he doesn't know where it's coming from. And you get that feeling when you're sitting there in the theater too. You're just it, it, for a second, I'm like, Oh my God, whoever directed this, like, please direct a horror film because this could so easily in my brain become, you know, a terrifying moment. So that's what I really appreciated for this is like giving us those new moments with Tom Holland, Spider-Man to realize how he is feeling the world around him. Action sequences are huge at every turn. Like th there's a fight like in every act and they're all so big that I'm like, Oh my gosh, like there is no, you know, they're, they're, they're just topping each other every single time. And none of these feel like wasted. None of this feels like wasted material. So I had so much fun watching this. Like, yes, we're going to get into um, some of our more critical responses, but um, for the most part, like I walked out of here with a huge smile on my face, tears that haven't dried off of my cheeks um, and just ready to return to theaters because I need to see this two, three, four, seven more times before I'm ready to put it down. I just want to live in that world for, you know, at, at least the rest of the year and maybe into next. It's going to be, you know, this is a wonderful introduction to um, what we hope to see more from Peter Parker. Um, and this movie changes a lot for that. So, you know, those are my big comments. I'm, I'm kind of ready to jump into some of our more critical responses. So we are going to hop into spoilers from this point. If you want to jump, there is a time code in the bottom of this video. If you've listened this far, if you didn't listen to my tag at the beginning of this episode, there is a time code at the bottom of the podcast description. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it doesn't matter. That time code will have just our ratings and our ending thoughts. If you just want to hear that, go skip to that now because we are delving into big spoilers that everyone has been trying to keep under wraps. This is your warning, okay? So skip the time code now. We're going into it in three two one huh what what oh my god so much to process i'm still on that if, high from watching it I, last night if i may i was wrong i was very wrong i was very wrong and i'm happy to be wrong <laughs> we have not one spider-man three spider-man in this movie how do you two feel about that okay so i will break it down first with 
Let's give an Oscar to Andrew Garfield, not just for Tick, Tick, Boom, but for pretending that he was not part of this movie whatsoever. Because <laughs> the man knows how to keep things under wraps and keep denying stuff. But um, no, all jokes aside, my mind's blown. Because honestly, Spider-Man was always one of my favorites. I did love watching the cartoon series as a kid in the 90s. I Spider-Man's always been a favorite of mine. So I am a little bit biased. Uh, it's amazing to see three of them in one movie right. and i i just could not believe it i mean i started freaking out the first time that ned opened a portal which also huh but what? when he started opening ned portal, has agency and, exactly and and the thing is, is i said that like in the first 10 minutes or whenever when they like fist bumped and he said something about oh i felt the spark i'm like Ned's got something going on and I'm yeah. excited to see it. And I didn't realize we'd get it within the same movie. But um, when he first opened that portal, I was like, oh God, it's a Spider-Man and he has his mask on. Is it happening? And then it happened. And I just, I, I lost, I, I honestly lost everything. My you mind did everything. And so I couldn't believe it, especially because if you have watched our rankings, Andrew Garfield is my favorite Spider-Man. And this movie completely solidified why he's my favorite, just for his, the sensitivity that he brings to this, to his version of Spider-Man just gets me every single time. And he, to me, I feel like he's like the geekiest. I, I don't know how to describe it. He's kind of like this awkward bean, in my opinion. And so I think that's one of the reasons why I love his version of Spider-Man. But I'm, I'm going to keep going on. I need to hear from someone else. Someone else I, jump in. I had to interrupt because I just wanted to say when that portal opened, I was like, whoa, why is Spider-Man all of a sudden taller and sexier? Oh, <laughs> because, <laughs> that's because it's um, not Tom Holland. <laughs> it's it's the hot Spider-Man. I'm sorry for calling you. You heard it here no. first. Tom Holland is not the sexiest Spider-Man. <laughs> um, when he, when he, when that portal opens, A, you know, Ned getting powers, uh, for one, it was weird, I think. I mean, I love it, but it was weird. And if it goes nowhere, I'll kind of be upset. But anyways, um, when that portal opened and we saw Spider-Man standing in the rain, initially my theater crickets were like, oh, um, you know, I don't think it hit anybody. And then it hit the one person in like the, furthest row and that's when everybody in the theater like we all took a collective gasp and it was beautiful to watch him come through that portal i was just like literally i'm probably getting goosebumps now because of how how it felt just to have something that seemed impossible like be realized because of the history that spider-man has you know across different directors across different actors across you know you name it it was so great to feel rewarded with having watched um even recently, like we ranked all of ours, we, we've all watched these movies, we've all grown up with them, and now it feels like we're getting this treat, and it, it was so beautiful. Brandon. You guys can't see the video that we're recording this on, but like the stupid permagrin I had the entire time Noah was talking is basically how I felt from the last third onwards to the end of the movie. It's so joyful. And the thing was, I kept mumbling to myself, like, God bless if anyone could hear me and put up with me in the, in the press screening. We're just going like, this is pointless. This is blatant fan service. It's just overdrawing an already too long movie. Why are we doing this? There's already too much stuff in this movie. As I'm grinning like an idiot and going, they did it. They actually did it. And I'm going to hear so many I told you so's over the next two months. I know it already because I was saying for so long they would never do it. And you know what? Andrew's great. Andrew is great in this. Um, he slides back into this so naturally. I think that is a credit to him as an actor. And where they actually take the character is kind of interesting between, you know, the idea of like how Gwen's death affects him, you know, the idea that he is the one who takes on the more 
like Sam, I know you watch Supergirl, so like you'll get this. But like the idea of like when Kara and that she like kind of stops being Kara for a while and just does Supergirl full time. It reminded me of that kind oh, of absolutely. Action. And then Toby, like, yeah, you can tell he's a little rusty. This is what happens when you don't act in anything for seven years. Um, but like he's there like all of that spider-manism is there and like back pains and all <laughs> back pains and all and like i love the scene of them on the statue where they're face i i joke to my friend over text like there is a whiteboard somewhere that you know amy pascal and you know kevin feige and all the other crew were like writing over like if we get all three of them in the movie what do we have them say to each other and i want to see that whiteboard desperately the behind the scenes are going to be insane just to look at at what it took to get these three actors in one movie. I can't wait to see it. And, you know, just kind of to your point too, Brandon, I, that's actually one of my negatives and it's a very slight negative because I know I'm going to contradict myself in saying this, but the movie overall, again, I liked it also had a permagrant on my face, the entire movie, but then, yeah, I will openly admit this entire movie felt like fan service. I will Thank say you. that. Well, because that's the thing. It's like, you know, you, you kind of look at a movie critically and then you're just like, okay, here's what I take it for. This movie absolutely is fan service. Everyone was expecting something and they got it right down to Matthew Murdoch, too, which also I was wrong about. I remember a long time ago we said something about, is that really you know, Charlie Cox, or maybe I was talking about it with no capes required. Shout out to Sky. But I just know I was like, it's his arm. What a stretch. That can't be Matthew Murdoch. And then look, I was wrong in that too. I'm just like, first of all, how do you all know that's his arm when it's clothed with like a white dress shirt? Second of all, I mean, no, that's a whole other conversation. Point being fan service. Entire thing was fan service, but I liked it. And again, it's because I fell into that where it's like, I'm a Spider-Man fan, always have been, always will be. And it worked for me. It worked. I, I mean, even the point where, you know, like Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man, he goes in and saves MJ and does something that he couldn't do for his own universe. He couldn't do for his own Gwen Stacy. And so that was and something that was super predictable. The look and and just everybody in the theater had a collective. Oh, which that's MCU playing to its viewers emotions best. They know exactly what viewers want and they get that emotion. And so it, it, you know, that's that's warranted. I knew it was going to happen or in a, some other multiverse universe of ours. I thought that maybe Gwen Stacy's spider Gwen would come in and save her. I don't know why I thought that. But now this movie has made everything possible. Maybe we will see Emma Stone come back as her own Gwen Stacy or an alternate version of Gwen Stacy like spider Gwen. Who knows? Like literally anything is possible at this point, too. But yeah, right. that is my negative is fan service. It, it is fan servicey, but I like it. Sorry, no, I will go over to you. They were apparently supposed to, like COVID concerns prevented them from coming on set, but like apparently Kirsten Dunst and Emma Stone were supposed to be in this. But anyway, go on. I was expecting them to be right. in the end credits scene, to be honest. I right? was hoping for that, but then I'm still happy about that. So no, I know that you have your hand up. You got to go. <laughs> no, I'm just like, imagine uh, Chris, Kirsten Dunst um, coming in blonde and then Emma Stone coming in as a redhead. And like, they're like, wait, you're not my, wait, you're MJ. You're Gwen. What? So they're doing the Spider-Man uh, meme when they're pointing at each other, but they're, <laughs> but they're the love interests. Like, wait. <laughs> okay. Um, to, to the Charlie Cox point, I felt, um, slightly and disappointed is the wrong word. So let, I, I don't know if I could find the right one. Maybe one of you can, but when he popped up on screen, we did hear half or maybe a third of the theater go yes and and you know clap their hands but it, it felt like the first moment where 
I have to be engaged with more than just this series in order to get all of the fun from it, in order to get all of the reward from it. And to me, that's a downside. It's like, I want to be able to enjoy a movie, sit down with it and understand that it's part three of a trilogy and be like, okay, I've watched one and two. I should be able to understand everything that is being thrown at me. And when I'm not, because I haven't tuned into, you know, one of the Netflix series, which I think a lot of fans haven't, you know, not, not a lot of people have seen the defenders or everybody that is involved in, um, what is it? Hell's Kitchen. Uh, and so I just think that that was uh, a downside for me. Um, you know, but I won't say that it didn't fit. It was fun. It was nice. He caught a brick. It was cool. He was wearing red glasses. I want some. And then I wanted to say that this, it was Spider-Man's movie in the beginning. Once the other Spider-Man came in, it was Spider-Man's movie. Every scene with the villains actually belonged to them. Like it actually switched focus from all the Spider-Man and gave light to Willem Dafoe, to Jamie Foxx. Everybody got their time to shine, I think, except for Sandman and for Sandman's effects to mostly be like the shroud that he created around uh, their action sets. I just felt like he was underutilized and I didn't feel like I needed to see him. And then he felt like the only person who didn't have a reason to fight against the Spider-Man. He really wanted to return home because of his connection to his daughter. So it felt odd that he was, you know, still there. Sam. And see, I feel like that was consistent with his character because that was something even in Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man generation, it was consistent. He's like, I just want to go home. Like, I don't care about any of this. I got to do what I got to do. I just want to see my daughter. So props to the consistency, but I also totally get where you're saying too. Like, it just felt like he didn't have as much agency as some of the others. But then having said that, I also feel like uh, Connors also didn't have much agency in this either. He was just kind of chilling out on the side, like, yeah, I'm going to hang out in the truck. You guys do whatever you want. And so that, that was also interesting to see too. So you could clearly see like who signed up with the bigger deal, the bigger uh, payout because they had way more screen time and more agency in this fight. But then, you know, having said that too, with all of our villains, I really appreciate where they went with Doc Ock in this because he also was always one of my favorite villains. And I didn't really expect him to kind of take that. All right. He's, understanding he's taking kind of a good guy side to things and i i honestly didn't expect that um so to me that was really interesting and even i I like that we shook up the formula to see that the end of the movie it wasn't about just fighting these guys it was just trying to help them out going back to how again if you just like your friendly neighborhood spider-man young kid just trying to do the right thing that's exactly what this ending gave us and i liked it to mix up the formula that like oh this person's bad and we just want to defeat them there, these people are bad at times, but then it's like, oh, you're actually trying to help them. And I thought that was an interesting way to shake it up. I have so much to comment on, but I will try and make it as brief as I can. One, sorry, Brandon. <laughs> no, so, sorry. I squealed at the Daredevil thing. I don't even care. We're moving on from that. We're never acknowledging it again. Second, uh, Marissa Tomei is Aunt May. Probably the best she's been in the entire trilogy. She gets one moment that, yes, is not her character in the comics. Yes, I know some purist fans are going to be, you know, raging about I don't care. It's brilliant and it's wonderful and it's emotional and I'm so glad that it's there. Uh, and I, number three, Willem Dafoe, I need to talk about because I think he in this movie, he is the villain who has the most gravitas, the most interesting development. Yes, you have Alfred Molina who goes back to being, you know, as for, as for all intents and purposes, a good guy. And I like that parallel for where Otto was at in Spider-Man 2. But with Willem, despite the fact that Norman's timeline makes no sense, let's get past that for a second. Like, I love what they do with the character. Like, yes, we get a scene with him and Toby. That's awesome. But, like, the relationship with him and Tom Spidey, I think, is so perplexingly father-son-like. I think it's him looking at it as, like, a second chance, as, like, he never had, and understanding the gravitas and the situation of where he's at more than any of the other antagonists. So, 
that's what I wanted to get across. And I will just simply wrap up my biggest negative, which again, Sam, you got to. If you take the, you know, from about an hour and a half in up until the last 10 minutes, you take all the multiversal stuff out and you basically make it as, you know, it's a magical threat and Peter has to make stakes or else the world will forget his identity. If you just narrow it to that, this is the best Spider-Man movie of all time. It has all the stakes in the world. It has all the patience in the world. And it still has the pacing and the performances and everything else. But you don't get caught up in the fan service. You don't get caught up in the scale of it all. You don't get caught up in, again, the expectations of it all. And that was, to me, the biggest negative about this movie was that I was getting caught up in it. And I love it. And I'm going to revisit it for all of those reasons and be having a stupid permigrant on my face the entire time. But as a critic, I have to look at that structural point and be like, you could have cut off. 45 minutes to an hour of this and nothing would have changed. It's still Peter having to come down to the decision of making a choice, either the world or his happiness. And that's Spider-Man. And I adore that. I don't think I have much else to say. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Um, I don't think I have much else to say because I think we wrapped everything. I can't think of anything else to say. Um, I I talk too much. I talk too much. No, no, it's not that. I feel like I talked a lot because if you get me going, I'll go on for like a solid two hours. But um, yeah, I, I think I'm good. Okay, so if you're back, we are just getting into ratings. We didn't talk about spoilers at all. You've jumped in at a completely fresh point. Uh, Sam, over to you. Out of 10, what is Spider-Man No Way Home? For me, it's like a good, I'd say like eight and a half or nine. I It's because, you know, like, as we're talking about it, it's like, yeah, I absolutely love this movie, even for its flaws which are very minor for me in in this rating and like dinging it, but like, oh my gosh, it overall really absolutely adored the movie. And it is my favorite Spider-Man from Tom Holland's generation uh, from his set of movies. It's by far my favorite easily. So like eight and a half or nine. My rating for no way home is a nine out of 10. I thought it was nearly perfect. You know what? Because here's the thing. I've been making the hoopla about it. I've been the one, you know, saying the critical thing is, you know, this, this, and that. It's the holiday season. This is a nine. Uh, And I think there is an argument to be made. I think come down the line, there is an argument to be made that this is the best Spider-Man movie of all time. Because it honors who Peter is as a character beyond everything else. That Peter as a character is who he is in the comics as, you know, Lee and Ditko envisioned him. He's this kid who wants to do right, who is left with unprecedented choices. And is that movie this? Yes. On top of Tom Holland really just fully coming into his own as Spider-Man by the end of the movie with his friends beside him who are so likable and actually have agency this time with his supporting cast, with with John Watts, again, proving himself as a really technical master of all this. So congrats to this movie. It's in theaters right now, I'm sure. Many of you are either seen it right now or are planning on seeing it, but if you haven't, we all recommend it. And so with that, we will be moving on to our last segment for the day, and that is our directorial debut. So in honor, again, of our, our friend and our sa- Lord and Savior, uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, we are going to continue uh, with his uh, directorial debut, which was Kronos. So that is a movie that came out in 1993. So uh, Brandon, I'll kick it over to you for a synopsis. Yeah, so as if we haven't talked about Guillermo del Toro enough today, uh, this is his directorial feature, Kronos. Uh, it's from 1993 from, from October Films. Uh, this is, of course, Guillermo del Toro's first project. This is him coming off, I believe, fresh right out of um, uh, Guadalajara Universidad, um, where he studied uh, film studies. He became a direct, 
as a young YouTube, you know, made Super 8 cameras, he tells a story about like how his first movies were like made with a potato and like Planet of the Apes action figures. This is his first, you know, feature length film. It stars Federico Lupi, a very well-known Spanish actor uh, who passed away a few years ago. He stars as Jesus Gris, who is a antiques curator, antiques finder, I guess, so to speak. Um, there is a prologue at the beginning. I won't spoil it if you haven't, but you'll say it involves horror, a weird device, whatever. That's Jesus in the present day of 1997 when this film is made. He comes across this device. It's kind of this weird, like, scarab-shaped thing. Uh, it attaches to his wrist. It, in- it injects something into him. And as he goes on through the movie, he kind of finds that his demeanor and physicality are changing. He has less wrinkles. His hair is, you know, fluffier, but also, like, his skin is starting to change. He maybe has a... Uh, a craving for blood, possibly. Um, and all this is concerning his granddaughter, uh, Aurora, played by Tamara Shanoff, uh, as well as gathering the attention of a businessman, uh, Dieter, played by Claudio Brook, and his American nephew, played by, oh, looky, it's Ron Perlman in his first Guillermo collaboration all the way back then. Uh, they have been seeking this scarab, this artifact, for seemingly legendary purposes. Uh, they haven't been able to find it yet. They found like a lot of imitators, but it's not actually it. Anyways, it essentially comes into conflict where Ron Perlman and his uncle have to try and find this artifact before something terrible potentially happens to Jesus and potentially even his granddaughter as well. Sam, going over to you first. Uh, I know we've all had, you know, varying degrees of Del Toro love and we all, you know, appreciate him for, you know, the film genius that he professes to be. And for a lot of instances, I think there's value to that. Um, what did you, what, what have you thought of Guillermo Del Toro's uh, career going forward thus far, you know, with Nightmare Alley and everything like that we just talked about? And how does Kronos tie into that? Yeah, honestly, I, I do like Guillermo Del Toro. When I think of directors, I, I, you know, like top directors for me personally, he doesn't come up immediately. I know it's weird to say it, but, but no, like I appreciate his work. He's absolutely one of the best directors, especially because his style is so distinctive. Right. I mean, we kind of, I I think I teased it a little earlier. Like he, he specializes or he's known for, uh, like his creature features. I mean, we have The Shape of Water most recently, which won the Oscars. Um, but then we also have like Pan's Labyrinth. And so, you know, it's just, it's just clear that he does creatures very well, even for scary stories to tell in the dark, albeit not a fantastic movie, but really, really good visuals, which was a nice homage to the book. Anyway, off topic. Kronos, I thought that it was really cool because you see a bit of the mystery that he creates in all of his movies, like, you know, going forward from Kronos on, especially into Nightmare Alley, his latest movie. So I feel like his style is so consistent. And even in this early movie, it was still very similar to his work now because he's really good at creating that eerie air of things. And so with our main character, with the antique shop owner, it's just like you could see him kind of craving this the scarab and what it gives and then in turn like brandon mentioned kind of craving blood at a certain point because this thing makes you crave that to keep you young and so it's just like it's the whole thing's creepy it's odd um the creature itself is really odd which has really good visual effects considering this was in the 90s and um you see a creature within the scarab thing so it's kind of like it's consistent to what he's known for and i do appreciate it for what it's worth and um i thought the story was really interesting too there were a couple times that were kind of maddening for me like i don't know about how his granddaughter aurora kind of fits in the whole thing it just felt like you know she was kind of throw in to add stakes for the character you know because obviously it's like oh no i don't want my granddaughter getting hurt so um i don't know she was just kind of thrown in there and i'm sure she's going to have tons of emotional trauma after everything that happened in the movie but um 
yeah, I thought that Federico, uh, excuse me, Federico Lupi was fantastic in it. He's a great actor. And then especially seeing this um, young Ron Perlman, too, as um, is it Angel or an Angel? Is, is it Angel? And I especially like seeing like a younger Ron Perlman because I'm I'm you know used to seeing him in roles that are that are more current. Um, but uh, he plays Angel, who also has a lot of really high stakes in this movie, um, since he's kind of like his his uncle's lapdog, if you will. Um, and so I thought that you know overall the movie was was interesting. I I mean I definitely respect it for what it is, and excited to see what you all thought of it. I actually have a theory about Aurora real quick, because while this is not blatantly a Dracula retelling, although, you know, Del Toro has made it clear, like, his love of Universal Monsters before, if you don't see Shape of Water for all the example of that. But, like, I like that, number one, you know, we'll get into the idea of, like, what kind of a vampire movie this is. But I like the idea of Aurora kind of being, like, the Renfield parallel, like, kind of just very loyal by the protagonist side, like, throughout, you know, everything else, and kind of not knowing what to do, but being there in case the character needs it. It's not a bad theory. Yeah, Noah, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to touch on a couple of things that I found that really stuck with me after watching Kronos. Um, it, as a horror fan, it's nice to be like jump scared. You know, it's nice to be like, oh, get that immediate shock. But what's really nice is when um, a scene makes you kind of squirm in your seat and you're like, oh, yeah. I like that. And this movie has that. This movie has, um, <clears throat> there are a couple of times when our um, main character goes through uh you know, getting killed, but because this device makes him essentially immortal, uh, he's removing like debris from inside of his chest. He's pulling glass out of his mouth. And those kinds of scenes take just long enough for you to, to watch them. And if you're tuning into the sound and you're listening to it and you have that, that right sense of imagination, you can just feel like you're going through that. And so that, that's what I appreciated from it was seeing, was getting those scenes that really made you squirm. Uh, there's one scene in particular where they're at like a new year's Eve party and um, our, our main character, he gets on the ground to, he's like craving blood. So he gets on the ground and starts licking the blood off the floor and in my head i'm like just pretend it's barbecue sauce like just pretend like it's some really tasty you know um some kind of burger sauce but uh in my head you know i'm, I'm trying to still witness this as blood and uh it's gross you know and that's that's a good thing i like that he's creating these gross moments um clearly a fan of ron perlman i'm talking about del toro because then we move on into hellboy and i was a big fan of the hellboy movies with perlman uh probably because my dad like was influencing that um we mentioned pacific rim uh, earlier so uh, that's another I'm, I'm a fan of his work there too uh, and then of course Pan's Labyrinth like I remember watching that very young and just being so mesmerized by um, the ideation of what those creatures could look like um, how how fairy tale like the story could be while still being very um, mature and I think that that's what I appreciate and uh, just being a fan of the director no I haven't gotten around to seeing Kronos until this moment so I was very happy that we covered him on the pod yeah, I, for the most part, have loved Del Toro's work from the moment that I discovered the guy. Like, for me, Hellboy 2 is, like, one of the best comic book movies of all time. It might be one of the most underrated comic book movies of all time. I think that movie is beyond imaginative. Um, Pan's Labyrinth is a masterpiece. Uh, Pacific Rim is a ton of fun. Uh, Shape of Water is great. I know it's going to be made fun of as, you know, the fish sex movie till the end of the time, and fair enough. But, like, I find it beautiful and lovely and haunting and all that thing. And with Kronos, I like the idea of Del Toro starting out by very clearly taking the idea of, again, like Dracula or the idea of, you know, Nosferatu and these classic universal iconographies of vampirism and kind of transfixing it to this more, like, fantastical setting, like what he would go with with Pan's Labyrinth. Like, this feels like something that would be in, like, the pale man's room in Pan's Labyrinth. Like, that feels like kind of a thing. 
Um, and Federico Lupi does a wonderful job of this. You very clearly get the vibe from him that, you know, he is caring, he does have his priorities, but at the same time, he is not immune to power. And that's what this, you know, kind of scarab tells. It reminded me in a weird way, and bear with me the, this on example, it reminded me of the box from Jumanji, like this kind of thing that just gets passed down through the ages and just it tempts people in various ways. And it kind of reminded me of that, the point where I was towards the end thinking like, you could do a sequel with this. And then he smashes the thing and I'm like, well, you can't do a sequel with this. So that kind of perplexed me a little bit. So from a stylistic level, like Guillermo Navarro, who worked with Del Toro on a bunch of his other projects, he shoots this and he very much like establishes with Del Toro that kind of visual identity, you know, bright colors, you know, kind of flashes, but also taking advantage of like, you know, darkness wherever it can kind of seed itself through um and again like ron perlman really cool to see him in there i'm not used to seeing him in young so it took me a minute to recognize him um but yeah like as pacing goes it's well paced like it's a nice kind of you know subtle horror i've heard of people describe it as like horror comedy i don't buy that for one second like it's light but it's not a comedy um but yeah it's ethereal it's weird it's kind of eerie but it also has heart to it so i was kind of impressed by this i want to know who thought that it was like comedy I, I I don't see the humor in any of this. I found I it more like, to be like a horror, not like a horror thriller, but it was just kind of like that, like a very mild horror thriller. Yeah, I thought I read something from like Criterion or something like that. It was like, oh, the, you know, horror comedy or something like that. Like, I thought someone official said something like that. I was like, really? I Maybe dark humor. Maybe, The only yeah. thing I could think of is like his thirst for blood being mildly funny but i mean that very lightly like, well, like maybe, I, I, i'm trying to understand that person's point of view and i shouldn't be as stuck on it as i am but it's just intriguing I, like this maybe is why the, i love um, movies <laughs> like the stuff with him and his wife maybe you can pull something from that yeah oh, and i'm thinking yeah. there's some like offbeat moments like when he's getting dressed in the casket like that can be read that's as funny true. i thought yeah oh that's true and he's like wearing his clothes backwards and stuff Huh. And I wanted to appreciate uh, how the scenes were dressed, especially when we were when we were introduced to that uh, antique shop. I just it, it feels like such a uh, I don't know if it's a 90s thing or just movies from, you know, before all of these, uh, you know, green screen backdrops. It was just nice to see all the ornamental items that were around his shop. Like I wanted to pick up, I wanted to feel, I wanted to touch everything. And as he was like uh, uncovering the statue, I was like, oh, what's behind that? Like, I just, I love seeing a fully dressed set. And that's what I think this movie provided. Um, even in the scenes underground, uh, looking at it from, you know, a wide scale, I, I appreciated all the mono, like the mono color, everything was gray. And I liked that. It reminded me of a glass. Uh, and so those were some of the other things I was paying attention to. It's interesting because you mentioned the antique shop. I'm wondering because this was, you know, Del Toro, like fresh out of university and, you know, kind of, you know, dealing with limited budgets. I wonder if that's an actual shop or he actually got a production designer to build something like that. We got to read the production notes. We got to look right? that up. Yeah. <laughs> but no, overall, it was really it was really a, a fun movie. And I'm glad that we were able to explore that. I think uh, without further ado, I'm ready for ratings. Pretty solid, like. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it. And I love it for its value in introducing us to this iconic director, especially in the realm of horror. Uh, I would give this a seven and a half out of 10. Yeah. I've seen people defend this as like one of Del Toro's most underrated projects. And I kind of agree. Um, to me, it doesn't match his highs. Like he very clearly, much like Spike Lee, much like, you know, some of the other directors we talked about, his best work comes later. Um, I don't think this matches up to Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth in its entirety at all. 
That being said, like, it's interesting. Like, it takes an interesting concept and rolls with it in this kind of atmosphere that it thrives in. It's got interesting performances. It's shot well. Um, so, yeah, it's a very solid seven for me. I'd recommend this. Uh, it's on HBO Max if you want to check it out. It's also on VOD services. Um, if you're a completionist, I think it's worth a watch. If you're a horror fan, you know, Noah can speak to that more than I can. But I found it kind of interesting, especially if you're not a horror fan like Sam and I are. So, yeah, i check it out. Yeah, to echo into the antique shop, I honestly think it's also like a seven, seven and a half for me, just because um, same reasonings. It's just that, you know, like like Brandon just said, I mean, I'm, I'm personally not a huge horror fan, but I found a lot to enjoy out of this just for the psychological aspects of it. And story-wise, I thought it was pretty solid. I mean, it flowed really well. It was an interesting concept, and it, it held really well on its own. And I think it still ages really well, personally. Maybe not so much the makeup, but I mean, otherwise, you know, in all of its aspects, it really, in my opinion, ages well. And it's not, I wouldn't say it's like one of Guillermo del Toro's most underrated works, but it's like a really a really good introduction to what's to come in his career so yeah for me solid seven seven and a half and i can easily see um you know horror, diehard horror fans like keeping that little scarab because it looks so cool and i think that it is one of those uh like movie artifacts that i think like a collector probably owns because uh this movie really shines light on like what what those important objects are and i like when movies do that because i, I want to take the time turner home I, I love an iconic monument or an artifact it's very niche yeah it's very niche like shelf merchandise absolutely agree (laughs) just if you ever find it just don't put it on your hand please (laughs) agree (laughs) i'll put it on my dog so we can live forever oh but then you're hurting your dog i know and then my dog will start eating i was gonna say gonna start eating like wild animals and then drinking blood yeah anyways eat the rats that's the sequel (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i should mention sorry we will end the show but like there is apparently a standalone sequel i've never heard of this apparently the only character that comes back is the coroner guy from when frederico lupi's character comes back very weird maybe we'll talk about that at some point the sequel is frank and Weenie. <laughs> no just message in our chat disney somehow got the rights we never knew about it that's how it happened it's uh, an underground project it's not a grand project. That being said, we are going to wrap episode 17 for you guys. Thank you all so much for taking the time to once again listen to our madness and our show for today. While we've got you here, do us a quick favor. Click on that follow button on either uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening, or on our RSS feed if you managed to find us through there. Uh, follow us there. You'll get updates on both of those services where our new episodes come out. They are usually late Sunday, early Monday. Go follow us there. And follow us on social media at Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. That's Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Updates there all the time, you know, Twitter questions, all those weird things. I want to thank our panelists for today. First of all, Noah Guzman, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can the people find you and uh, what do you got going on in your life? People can find me on Twitter, preferably at Noah's Plotting. Uh, what do I have going on in my life right now? For one, making my way to theaters because I wasn't a part of that Nightmare Alley discussion. Um, regrettably so. So I need to rush to theaters to go ahead and check that out for myself. We can have a discussion off the pod. Um, but otherwise... I don't have any reviews approaching, you know, I'm going to enjoy the rest of the holiday season. And then uh, early next year, I'll kick it up with some new reviews. And, you know, that's all I have on my plate right now. And also joining us today in her last main cast appearance, uh, Samantha Incorvaya. Thank you again so much for uh, for joining us today, but also helping us build this, you know, massive entity that we have, you know, managed to create. Where can the people find you and uh, what do you got going on in your life that, you should, that people should know about? Yeah, thank you, Brandon. No, just first of all, yeah, I just wanted to reiterate that, you know, this has been so much fun and I'm so honored that I was even part of like the 
the first group for plot devices too. So, you know, I can't thank you guys enough. And especially since I'm, I'm glad we're all friends here and I'm, I'm super excited to keep talking about movies with you, whether it's on or off the pod. And I'm sure that people haven't seen the last of me on here. It's just, I'll be taking an extended full-time host break from that and away from that. Or anyways, I'm rambling on. Um, but no, thank you guys just for having me. And so, um, things that are coming up for me, I do have a review for Tender Bar. It's a movie that's coming out that stars uh, Ty Sheridan and uh, Ben Affleck in it. So really nice movie, excited to talk about it. And so um, that's coming up. People could follow me on Twitter at S underscore Corvaya, or they could find me on Instagram at SamIM520. So um, find that in the description somewhere, anywhere. But either way, excited to chat movies and still stay in touch with everyone. Of course. And you guys can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Follow my band at Killbox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram as well. We have a show coming up, uh, Rebel Lounge in Phoenix, December 28th. That's on Tuesday, December 28th. Uh, us, Natural Flavors, Practically People, Weapon of Pride. Tickets are available at ctickets.us.com. We'll put a link in the description if you want to check that out. We'd be really appreciative. We've been working really hard on it. We'd love for you guys to come out and support us on that. And reviews, uh, reviews for Encounter, again with Riz Ahmed. We talked about that last week. And Spider-Man No Way Home coming out this week on ASU Odyssey. Check, again, Twitter and Instagram, at MovieKing45. Keep the links out for those. So with that being said, uh, for myself, from Noah Guzman, from Samantha Corvaya, this has been Plot Devices. We'll catch you guys next time. <laughs>